0: sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you news from the United States, Israel, Hungary, and a see you in hell that's a dead fascist to celebrate from Italy. In the United States, as per usual, we have more stories regarding the fallout from the January 6th attempted coup uh, staged by Donald Trump and his allies in the United States Capitol. Uh, For example, a representative in the Oregon State House, a Mr. Neerman. Uh, was expelled from the House, uh, from what I understand, a first uh, in the Oregon State House. It was nearly unanimous, uh, with he himself being the only dissenting vote. Uh, this was because he let right-wing protesters into the Oregon State House uh, December of last year, this December 2020, during the height of that state's uh, coronavirus pandemic outbreak, uh, much like much of the rest of the United States. Uh, These and other stormings of state houses in the United States, in Oregon, in Michigan, in many other states throughout the country uh, were essentially dress rehearsals uh, for the January 6th attempted coup uh, in that they involved, you know, armed right wing protesters entering the halls of government in order to stop or interfere with um, with legislative proceedings with 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 counting and stuff. Additionally, we are just getting more and more reports, more and more evidence of police officers and active duty military uh, who are now known to not just have been at the January 6th coup, but to have actually participated. You know, they actually tried to enter the Capitol building or indeed did. Uh, One, for example, is a uh, Carol. Chuisik, C-H-W-I-E-S-I-U-K, a CPD officer, uh, that's the Chicago Police Department, a CPD officer like on duty who is in the Capitol building, you know, posting selfies to his own Facebook group. Uh, this guy is just one of many. You know, we're we're just getting reports and reports after reports after reports of people who are just involved in the state security apparatus participating in this coup. Now, for those of you who know about how coups typically go down uh, or who know about the histories of coups and attempted coups in other countries, this shouldn't come as a particular surprise to you, uh, nor should it be a surprise to you if you are a habitual listener of this podcast. Obviously, we're not done diving down this particular rabbit hole uh, as more and more people get indicted and as more and more people's identities get found out. But the thing to remember is that even if all of these people go to jail for their involvement in this coup, they are probably not really the people who planned it. And there are literally thousands, maybe millions of people like them who agree with them who stood on their side, and who would potentially do this same thing again. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about you know, the turn against uh, critical race theory uh, in the United States educational and just sort of like media universe. Uh, for those of you who have been living under a rock for the last couple of weeks, uh, the push against critical race theory has uh, been growing significantly, uh, not just in um, various state houses, but also in a lot of media outlets. Uh, critical race theory is a it's a contemporary way that academics discuss, um, the influence of race and racism and racial structures and systems, uh, in, uh, oppression and the organization of society in the United States. That's a, that's a very bare bones description of it. Uh, I am an academic myself, but I am not an expert in this particular field. Uh, so I would suggest you, you turn to people who actually are, uh, to get better descriptions of this, um, for the purposes of this podcast, however, uh, it's important to note that the right wing in the United States is using critical race theory essentially as as a boogeyman, as a straw man, um, because they don't understand it. They don't understand what it's for, what it means, or or you know what its significance is uh, to the history of the United States or the world. Uh, they're using it as an enemy uh, to galvanize support against uh, what they consider to be the, you know, the mainstream left or the radical left and their control of education. And, you know, like like poisoning the minds of young children and and shit like that. Obviously, this is disgusting and ridiculous. But um, the thing to note here is that they are gaining ground. Uh, For example, uh, NBC is reporting that the state of Florida has banned all uh, critical race theory, as they put it, uh, being taught in schools in Florida. Um, that's completely insane, um, because ultimately that could arguably mean that it would be illegal in the state of Florida to discuss the structural ramifications of the history of slavery in the United States, uh, without which it would be completely impossible to understand the United States, uh, let alone the state of the world today. Uh this is an extremely disturbing trend. And as somebody who studies the history of fascism, I have to tell you that ignoring and erasing from history, particularly disturbing and terrible episodes uh, in the governance of a country is a major part of how fascists control the narrative of history and, and, you know, produce an image of a country that, you know, always is always was always should be honorable and noble, uh, even, and in fact, especially when it really isn't. Outside of the United States, Israel has uh, elected a new government uh, for the first time in an extremely long time. And this is something that I touched on last week, but it has been finalized. now uh, Netanyahu is no longer the prime minister of Israel. Uh, this reporting uh, that I'm reading is coming from The New York Times. Uh, a man named Bennett is now the PM. Uh, he is the leader of a well, a truly impressively multi-party alliance. Uh, it's quite crazy. Um, But he is the leader of a multi-party alliance that uh, invokes parties from the far left to the the far right, or the even farther right, really, um, and also several centrist parties. Uh, Bennett is in many respects to the right of Netanyahu, although perhaps not leaning quite so much on um, the the Orthodox Jewish communities in Israel, uh, to the extent that Netanyahu did. Uh, They were a major part of Netanyahu's political coalition. Uh, Bennett is supposed to cede power to his uh, coalition partner, uh, a leader of a centrist party, in two years. Uh, However, most people think that it's unlikely that this particular coalition will last that long, Uh, so we'll just have to see. Finally, in Hungary, uh, Hungary, under Viktor Orban, uh, whose right-wing party uh, Jobbik has just dominated Hungarian politics for an extremely long time uh, and is uh, quite disturbing and very much a right-wing party. Um, they have banned all instruction about LGBTQ people or issues and all discussion or, or mention or even just like imagery related to uh, LGBTQ people or issues on all television uh, before the watershed. So, you know, that's like, like before 8 or 10 p.m. often. Uh, this is from The Guardian. Uh, This is part of a longer-term attack on LGBTQ rights in that country uh, by Orban's government. And it's also part of a a big full culture war push uh, that Orban has been conducting for the last... Well, several years, um, consisting of a push against uh, LGBTQ people and and rights, uh, and also a racist push uh, against immigrants. Um, and additionally, just like an attack on the left, on academics, on all sorts of things, uh, he is going full right wing uh, in a way that was always transparently his goal, um, but is particularly disturbing given that his power is just growing uh, as the country gains emergency powers uh, during the coronavirus. Virus pandemic. Orban is the real deal. Uh, He is an actual like para fascist who is the leader of a major European state. Now, Hungary itself is not a particularly you know big, influential, or powerful country, uh, but as a member of the European Union, it has a lot of power and rights within that institution and on the continent. And the fact that they are just like they can just do this, you know, they can they can just. Trample on the rights of people whose rights are ostensibly protected under European law is an example of how, uh, like, the ideals of, you know, liberal neutrality that the European Union is essentially based on, um, without the kind of teeth that you need in order to protect those kinds of rights and institutions, uh, can be attacked from the right wing. And that is precisely what Orban and his allies are doing. going to close out this week as i do every week with see you in hell a segment that celebrates the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history Uh, this week we've got julius evola an italian fascist intellectual evola was born in rome in 1898 and he studied but did not complete an engineering degree. Uh, he thought that it was, you know, too bourgeois. It was it was, you know, too stodgy, too, too old. Uh, he turned to art and literature, uh, like many other disaffected young intellectual men at the uh, fin de siècle, you know, at the turn of the century time. He served in the Italian army in the artillery in World War One. Uh, and afterwards uh, turned to futurism and Dadaism post-war, uh, but was eventually sort of uh, disaffected of these particular intellectual and artistic movements. He then turned to what he ultimately landed on uh, as his, you know, his his major intellectual position and and his you know his major focus and fascination, uh, which was essentially uh, anti-Christianism, neo-paganism, mysticism, uh, esotericism. Uh, these are intellectual movements and traditions that were really big, uh, especially among you know elites and like quasi-elites uh, of exactly able to stripe. Uh, at exactly this time, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, he was a sort of, like, neo-pagan, anti-Christian. Uh, he criticized the Catholic Church and wrote a lot of, like, appeals to the ancient world and ancient rome and you know ancient traditions and the old ways uh, this is how he enters the fascist and right-wing universe uh, although initially he was opposed to fascism and was actually opposed by the fascist party uh, because of his criticism of the catholic church since you know officially the catholic church and the fascist party in italy were you know working together they, they had an accord uh to allow themselves you know their their own spheres of influence and power. Um, Evola wrote one of his most influential books uh, in 1934. Uh, it's called Revolt Against the Modern World. Uh, again, this is an appeal to the ancient golden age, uh, to Rome, to pan-Europeanism, uh, and an opposition to Christianity, essentially, uh, or at least related to Christianity's association with Judaism, uh, because Evola was a effectively a lifelong anti-Semite. Uh, So, again, while Evola was initially skeptical of fascism and the party, uh, essentially because he was an aristocrat and an elitist, uh, whereas fascism is a mass political movement, it was in the Italian fascist party and remains to this day. Uh, Mussolini, however, uh, sort of turned toward Evola as part of his uh, rapprochement to racism, uh, which was part of his alliance with uh, Nazis uh, during and immediately before World War II. Evola, uh, provided a sort of ideological justification for this turn for Mussolini, um, because, you know, of the way that Evola talked about Arianism and paganism and, and, you know, Europeanness, uh, this helped justify, uh, Mussolini's combination of his, like, uh, just belief in the superiority of, you know, Roman, that is Italian civilization, uh, which allowed a turn towards an opposition to Judaism, uh, Marxism, all those sorts of things. So, so, uh, Evola's ideology really like provides a, a point of unification, uh, between what was Mussolini's Italian nationalism and an opposition to Judaism and, uh, other kinds of internationalism. Uh, Evola used this position, uh, now that he was in the good graces of the leader, uh, he actually helped Mussolini significantly uh, late in the war, uh, especially he greeted Mussolini personally uh, when Mussolini was broken out of the prison that he was initially held in uh, when the Allies took uh, most of southern and central Italy. Uh, he worked in the Italian rump state, uh, that is the sort of like puppet government that the Germans set up uh, when they broke Mussolini out of prison. Uh, and was permanently paralyzed uh, by shrapnel, uh, paralyzed from the waist down, in 1945 uh, while he was staying in this rump state trying to help out Mussolini. Uh, evelo made it out of the war. Uh, he... He was not, you know, majorly prosecuted or majorly sought, uh, because he was, you know, effectively like, like an esthete. You know, he was an intellectual. He, he wrote a lot of books. That was his crime. Uh, after the war, he turned back to mysticism and esotericism, um, and became a real, you know, full-throated advocate of a pan-Europeanist, uh, pagan, you know, kind of anti-Christian or at least Christian skeptical ideology. Uh, he worked significantly with the post-war Italian right, uh, which earned him some criminal investigations uh, in 1951. Uh, he was put on, cr- on trial for his involvement with these neo-fascist organizations, which were, of course, illegal in Italy uh, after the fall of fascism. Uh, but he was acquitted. Uh, the other real important thing to remember about Evola is that he wasn't just influential in Italy. Uh, he was significantly well read in Germany as well during, uh, the 30s and 40s. And because he, you know, he's an intellectual who escaped Nazi and, uh, fascist falls, uh, during World War II. remains influential to this day, um, not unlike the intellectual I talked about several weeks ago, Carl Schmidt. Uh, Evola is extensively read, uh, by a lot of people who, you know, are essentially the same type of person, right? Uh, hyper-educated, elitist, um, you know, people who believe in a sort of like civilizational struggle, you know, that that the, the thing that the West needs to do is to remember its ancient and venerable traditions. Uh, one such person who is a big noted, like on the record, he just like says this shit fan of Julius Evola is uh, Steve Bannon, uh, arguably the architect of Donald Trump's victory in 2016 and a major player on the right wing in the United States today uh so yeah evola made it out he continued to be an intellectual uh he escaped criminal prosecution and died the 11th of june 1974 in rome of heart failure so julius evola we will see you in hell all right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you find this podcast helpful, educational, you know, yada yada, please like, share, and subscribe, and share it with friends, families, and comrades. Um, if you found it particularly useful check out my patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism that's 15 minutes of fascism all one word and if you have any questions you know things you want me to dive into things that you need clarification on or things that i messed up on uh, that you can correct me on uh, please email me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com all right i'll talk to you next week